0: And what he does is he tries to mess us up with counterfeit things because through it what happens is is that we'll become disappointed, we'll become discouraged, we'll throw the baby out with the bathwater, and we will miss truth, we will miss power, and we will probably miss something that God really wants us to embrace. Now, I'm going to give you just a couple concepts here before we read out of Ezra that you may want to write down and keep these in front of you because I think they're important, at least they've been important to me. The first thing, and I believe I put it on the screen overhead, is this. It is God's nature to always eclipse himself. That's God's nature. Say, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is, is that he will always outdo himself. He will always eclipse the thing that he has previously done. He will never be less than he is, and he will be stronger and greater than he was when he started. I believe that. Scripture, scripture teaches that over and over again. Jesus looked at disciples, and what did he say? He said in John, he said, Greater works than these will you do. That's pretty remarkable when you think about what he did, and he looks at us, and he said, You're going to do something even greater. Paul said in Romans that we will move from faith to faith. And so there's this progression that can begin to take place. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he said, that through the ministry of the Spirit, we will be transformed from glory to glory. And then perhaps one of my most favorite verses out of the book of Haggai, which actually Haggai was a prophet that was prophesying right around the same time as Ezra. And he says one of the most, I think, important and profound things in all the Bible when he says that the glory of the latter house will be greater than the former. He says what God's going to do in latter times will be greater than even what He's done in front of your own eyesight. So the Lord is always exceeding. He is always eclipsing whatever He has previously done. Now, the reason that's so important, I want to give you just a couple practical spiritual things that make this so very important to know. Why is it important? Number one, that whatever you face or whatever we face as a people today We can rest assured that our future is always greater. It is larger. It is better. It is brighter because of God's nature. I I don't care if you're in the worst of situations. I don't care if you just come out of a courtroom and they've slapped the gavel and you're going to prison. The good news is tomorrow's going to be better. Your future is going to be greater. It doesn't matter how bad it looks today. God forbid. Hurricane would have blown through our area. It could have taken out your house, dropped all the trees, shut us down for months. The good news is God still will eclipse himself in something greater. That's number one. Isn't that good? Should be. Some of you are facing some challenging moments. It's going to get better. Number two, there is a work that will take place of such dimension and of such proportion It hasn't happened yet, but the good news is it will happen and it will be of such magnitude that it will affect cities, it will affect regions, nations. God's intent is to shake this entire globe. Now now that's pretty remarkable, and he's going to use you and me to do it. Now that's important to realize that. And then finally, number three. The reason it's important to know that God always eclipses himself is because it will break the spirit of defeat and discouragement off your life. Sure, it will. If you know that God has something better tomorrow, then it ought to break defeat and discouragement off you today. Maybe we'll just stipulate this morning that that your week was the worst week any human being could have ever had. We'll just stipulate that. That ought to make you feel good. We'll agree with that with you. Here's the good news. The good news is is that tomorrow or next week or next month or next year or maybe in a decade, God's going to do some things if you keep serving Him, pursuing Him, desiring Him. He's going to do some things that are such proportion, it ought to make you happy to realize you got nowhere to go but up. The church and God's people are being groomed to function in unprecedented power and anointing and influence. And purpose. So if all this be so, then it should not come as any surprise to any of us. Then Satan might, as he's watching all of this take place, he might want to either, A, seek to stop all this stuff in its, in its infant stages. He, he would want to somehow uh, kill some things off before it got too far. He wouldn't want you to get too far down the road, would he? before he'd try to do something to to stop it. Do you realize that every time God wanted to do something incredible, there was always a move to kill it. When God wanted to send a deliverer to Egypt by the name of Moses, he moved on the heart of a Pharaoh to kill all the children. You know that, don't you? When the Lord, the Father, sent his son into the earth in order to deliver all the people, how many of you know that he moved upon Herod to kill the children again? Every time God wants to do something great, the enemy begins to move and he seeks to kill and to destroy and to steal. That should come as no surprise to us. The second thing is that if he can't stop it by by killing it or or somehow somehow stealing or, 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 or subverting it, secondly, he will confuse us. In fact, I believe that's probably the greatest thing, single thing the enemy does in most of our lives is he brings confusion to us. He brings confusion to us through deception. He brings confusion to us through counterfeits. He gets us to embrace either silly stuff or erroneous stuff. or He'll just get us confused in all sorts of ways because if he gets you confused, we all know God does not author what? confusion so if he can get you in confusion he knows he's got you out of the flow the life flow of what the spirit can do and so the enemy is endeavoring i think in the hour we're living in to do some of these very things in our lives personally and i believe in our culture in our nation and in the globe and i mentioned last week again on discernment and having to have discernment but i told you this week i wanted to talk about the ladder house the ladder house and so I want to read to you some verses out of Ezra, and uh, just tell you a little bit about the story of Ezra, and share with you what I believe the Lord is saying to us in a positive way with regards to what the Lord is building in the earth, and I want to be a part of what the Lord is building, don't you? Amen. Somebody said, what are you? How do you identify yourself? I identify myself this way. I'm, when, I'm in the middle of whatever God's up to. Amen. I want to be in the center of His will. Have you found Ezra? Ezra chapter three. I'm going to begin reading with verse one. Says, and when the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. And Joshua the son of Jozadak and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and his brethren arose and built the altar of God to Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Why don't Why don't they just name people? You know, like, you know, Bob named Smith or something. But anyway, verse three, though, fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its basis and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the feast of tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. Verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Now, I've got this underlined in my Bible. You may want to do that in yours. It says, although. In other words, they've done a lot of good stuff up to this point, Although. The foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Jump over now to verse 10. It says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But then we get to verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the Father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern The noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. And I want to take a minute or two this morning to talk about preparing for the latter house. Preparing for the latter house. Here in the book of Ezra, he begins to tell the story of the return of the exiled Jews. For those of you that can remember your history, you'll remember that the Jews had been led into captivity from Babylon, and they spent 70 years in Babylon under that captivity. After 70 years were completed, they were released, as was prophesied by Isaiah, really uh, decades earlier, by an emperor by the name of, or a ruler by the name of Cyrus. And so Cyrus releases the Jews in order to go back to Israel in order to begin to rebuild the city, to begin to put their nation together again, and most importantly, to begin to rebuild the temple. Now, as I've kind of studied it, I've seen that the Jews sort of returned in a staggered fashion. It didn't mean that everybody suddenly picked up and everybody went back all at once. They sort of went back in a staggered fashion. The most zealous Jews certainly packed up and they returned instantly, while others, it seems, waited for. Something I guess in Babylon to take place before they were fully confident that they wanted to go back to their their original nation But the problem was for both of those who determined they would return right away And for those who decided they would stay yet for a period before they came back They had been in captivity for so long That there were at least two generations remember this was 70 years there were at least two generations that had lived in Babylon for so long that their thinking was thoroughly what I call Babylonianized. Now, I don't know if that's a word or not, but I think you know what I'm trying to communicate. They lived in Babylon. They functioned in Babylon. They worked in Babylon. They were, they were exposed to Babylonian influences for 70 years. And so their thinking was thoroughly Babylonianized. And they may have been Jews by race, but their brains were Babylonian. So the effect in all of this was simply this. That despite the fact that God had opened the door, He had fulfilled prophecy, they were released, and to some extent they understood what it meant to... Follow through with the will of God and the heart of God to get out of captivity The problem was that despite all of these great things that God did for them to release them from their captivity Their greatest problem was not that they were in physical captivity Their greatest problem was their brain was still in captivity They never got Babylon out of their mind Now geographically they were no longer in Babylon, but their brain was still in Babylon It's what happened every time the Jews were overcome or or, or they were taken away or or, or captured is that they'd have generations of offspring that would grow up in these these what they called heathen areas and and they'd lose what it meant to serve God and love God and think like the Lord and pursue the Lord and and, and their brains would become uh, captive. And so they began to to think and they began to live the way babylonians lived even though even though they were no longer in that country that's why you need deliverance can i just share this with you the reason the reason the christian church today won't get discipled it's hard to disciple people and the reason is because it's like i've often said i don't know why god gives us a new heart he should have gave us a new brain The reason Christians are so hard to disciple is because I believe their hearts get transformed, but the brains stay the same. And they still think like the culture. They still think like Americans. They still think like they're in captivity. And, and so that's why you need deliverance. You, you, you need to get rewired because Babylon poisons our perspective. And the ones who returned to the nation were made of several generations of Jews who had a desire, now listen to me, they had a desire to get Israel back on track spiritually. I'm not not being critical of their desire. They knew they needed to go back and get the nation up and going, and and they knew that they would have to rebuild the temple, and they knew that the walls would have to be rebuilt. And so it's important to really understand this first group of Jews that are going back to uh, their old nation. Their motive is really good. Give them some credit that they were the first ones up and going. So their motive was good. Their intentions were honorable. So what did they do? Well, Ezra tells us they go back to the nation and they begin to reestablish the feasts. They begin to set up the altars. They begin to sacrifice unto the Lord again. They begin to establish all this religious activity so their motives are good, and that's great stuff to do. But in verse 6, I pause there, and I want you to remember it once again. It says that despite all of this religious activity that they were doing, it says the foundation had not been laid. The foundation had not been laid. So, in other words, they were just I'll just I'll just leap to the 21st century. They were doing church, but there wasn't a foundation. Are you with me? They're doing what they do without any foundation. Those of you that were here a couple years ago, we had a prophet from Lake City that was here in one of our prophetic conferences. His name was Jim Rawlins. And he prophesied to us, and, and in our house, we have read that prophecy, I cannot tell you how many times. And he prophesied some things that at the time were interesting, at the time we didn't understand some of those things began to unfold through the years. Even to this day, I'm still hearing the voice of the Lord come through several of the things that he shared. But he prophesied to us as a body about foundations. And that prophecy, for those of you that weren't here, I, I, I didn't bring it with me to read it to you again. But I can synopsize it by saying that he prophesied over us that, that there were foundations that needed to be ripped out. And when those foundations were ripped out, he said that new ones were going to have to be set in. Those foundations were going to have to go in even deeper because he said the magnitude of what God wanted to do would not be held. It would not be housed on the foundations that that we had originally supposed would hold it. So God says, I'm going to tear that out and I'm going to put new ones in. In fact, he said, you thought you were building on a mountain, but really you're in a swamp. And he said, when you're in a swamp, you've got to dig deeper and deeper and deeper until you hit bedrock. And once you get to bedrock, it is there you can begin to get the foundation in order. And that word has just just ministered to me in so many ways that I can't even describe. But I believe the Lord is trying to say something to us with regards to foundation. You see, we live in a city, and dare I say we live in a nation that's doing church, aren't we? I mean, there's no lack of churches in America. In fact, somebody told me that there are over 380,000 churches in America. 380,000. I just started trying to do some figuring, and that's... I mean, I know some states are bigger than other states, but that's 7,000 churches in every state. I mean, that's a lot of people doing church, isn't it? I mean, I have to believe that many of those people doing church... In fact, maybe most of the folks doing church are certainly of good motive. I mean, you really couldn't challenge anybody's intention or motive about being at church. I mean, going to church and being a part of worship service and those things. I mean, certainly that would be of good motive and good intent. But can I just just share an observation with you that despite having 380,000 churches in America, how come they seem to do better in third world countries than we do in ours? when it comes to the glory of God and the harvest field. I mean, we do church as good as anybody in the world, but there's no glory. There's no national impact. I'm three 380,000 churches, and look at our culture. 380,000 churches, and we still fuss about the moral issues of the day. We're still fussing with abortion. We're still fussing. We're still fussing with this, this moral, sane living. Where we uh, Can you believe what we fuss with? 380,000 churches and just stop for a minute and ask yourself, if there's, is there 380,000 of anything else? Maybe Starbucks. But then they've shut a few of those down, haven't they? 380,000. And yet here we are looking at our culture here in America, and there is no impact. And folks, let's just be honest. God always starts God always starts with ourselves first, and he moves from there. And until we get our garden right, he's not going to give us the nations. I, I, I'm not saying we don't reach the nations. I understand we do mission work. We certainly do. But I just believe that, that America can't hardly get its own house in order. Why is that? It's because Babylon, America, has rewired too many of us. We think, not first as a Christian, we think first most of the time as an American. We act like the culture. We process like the culture. We evaluate things like the culture evaluates it. We organize like business. We we talk like the culture talks. We venerate what the culture venerates we administrate the way the culture does it we esteem babylon don't we sure we do we esteem it the biggest the brightest the glitziest the largest the most we esteem it just like babylon does but we know intuitively that we need to do church sure we do we do it three hundred and eighty thousand times a weekend we're all doing church but here we are doing church and there's no glory and the question I ask myself, I'm not, I'm not picking on you any more than I'm picking on anyone else. I'm just asking the question, why, why? Well, can I suggest this to you? The foundation has not been laid. You know, God's a lot brighter than we are. Contrary to what some people think. Why would God give us something of global magnitude? Why would God give us something that's greater of such incredible proportion, when he knows the minute he drops it on us, it would crush us. We couldn't handle it because the foundation has not been laid. Now, in Ezra's time, everyone knew that something was amiss. Can we all say praise God to when we finally realize something's wrong? You you know, the first step to you being right is realizing something's wrong. In fact, I've often said to people three quarters of everyone's battle is simply admitting it's not right So so they see something's amiss They recognize that the foundation was missing and so they wanted god to show up They they wanted the lord To begin to manifest himself and so ezra tells us they begin to work on the foundation (laughs) Hallelujah They get a clue so they start building the foundation And when the foundation was complete, they had this dedication service. And at this dedication service, they were praising God and they were honoring Him. And there was one generation that praised God. It says incredibly, they gave Him praise with a great shout. They were shouting, they were saying, hallelujah, we've got the foundation set. But yet the word tells us there was another generation that was there that wept. You have one shouting a great shout, and yet you have another weeping great sobs. And it says the sound was so enormous that you couldn't tell one from the other. Now, why would that be so? Some believe that the older generation, we'll just call it for lack of a better term, some believe that it was due to their disappointment. Some people thought that that what they really wanted was they wanted to get their old temple back. They had seen Solomon's temple in all of its glory, and they'd seen the Lord show up at Solomon's temple, and the priests couldn't stand, and the fire coming down out of heaven, and all the things, the glory cloud. And, and, and they wanted what they had. They were, they were wanting that old temple back again, and, and they saw the foundation, and some people believe they were just disappointed. There were others that believe, and I am of this category. I believe they cried because they saw it was inferior. I think when they looked at it, they they said to themselves, you know what, I'm glad that you got some idea as to needing a foundation, but the foundation you have built will not hold the glory of God. The foundation you have built would not be enough to house His presence. The foundation you built, I know you probably tried doing it as best you knew how, but the foundation you have built is not going to be a foundation that the cloud would come to. It's not going to be a foundation that the fire will fall on. And then here all of a sudden was this, I call it this conundrum or this paradox that began to exist. You have two generations, so to speak, that that are looking at a situation and they're both right and they're both wrong. One generation was right in their desire to want to restore worship and service. They were right in wanting to make sure we're getting our act together. It's important to do church. It's important to get these things in order. But it was wrong when they thought at first they needed no foundation, and then it was wrong when they decided they could lay any foundation. The other generation, the one that wept, was right when it saw that it was inferior and deficient. And they knew it needed to be a better foundation. That generation knew that God was not going to come and dwell on the foundation that they had built there. They knew that, so they were right. But they were wrong in becoming an old wineskin who thought that God could only do what He had done. They had a yesterday spirit. They were looking for, you know, the last great move of God to take place again. And the Holy Spirit really revealed something to me, incredibly important. It was a little insightful to me. may not be to you. But the church in America has not prepared nor has it laid a foundation for the latter house. We're doing church. Don't misunderstand. We do church. I'm not saying we aren't doing a lot of good and perhaps even needful things. But my question isn't what's good and what's needful. My, my, My question more is what? What is the foundation that needs to come in order to house the latter glory? What's the foundation that needs to exist in order to solicit God's presence? What's the foundation that needs to be put down in order that God from above would look and he would begin to see and say, that is where I can set up shop. Are you hearing me? We do church, but the question isn't are you doing church? The question is, are you in the presence of God? What's the foundation? It has something to do with getting that laid correctly. see, for many people in the hour we're living, and the question has always been, well, how do we get more people to come to church? That's been the question. Now, that's a great question because people need to come to church, don't they? Sure they do. They need to come to church. They need to hear the word of the Lord. They need to be, you know, in the house of God with fellow believers. So it's a great motive. It's a great intent. It's just the wrong question. The question has never been, what do we need to lay as a foundation to get people to come to church? The question is, what do we lay as a foundation to get God to come to church? See, that's the question that's not being asked. And it's the one you and I, I think, have been called to begin to answer. Because you see, when God comes to his house, everything else gets solved. You can solve everything on your own, one little thing at a time, but you get God on the scene, and everything can get solved just like that. And I believe the answer is this. You've got to lay a foundation that will hold the glory of God. You see, the older Jews, they had a problem. The the younger ones did too. They both had problems. but The older Jews in Ezra's time had a problem because their problem was that they had seen a template of Solomon's temple. That is what they remembered. That's all they could remember when they saw the glory of God fall. So they naturally assumed that because that was the template, it had to look exactly that way when God would come again. In fact, they thought there was no other way perhaps that God would come unless you just sort of replayed and redid what had already been done in years past. Now, that was wrong, but understand that the younger ones totally neglected the template. They didn't even ask about a template. They didn't ask about any form. They just did what was right in their own mind. They just built a foundation. We know we need a foundation. We're going to put up a building. We'll just build one. But hear me go back to what I said. Their mind was not thinking God's pattern. Their mind was thinking Babylonian pattern. Hear me. We love everybody. And I believe there's a lot of good motive, well intentioned people. But God is not obligated to send His presence, so to speak, on that which is generated out of a Babylonian mentality. Just because it works for Walmart doesn't mean it's the foundation for the house of God. Just because Starbucks franchises it that way doesn't mean it's the template for the house of God. Are you hearing me? We've got to break out of Babylonian mentalities. The glory of God, that is the question. The question is not how do we hurt them in? The question is how do I bring you? How do I solicit you? Because my answer, my answer just isn't in numbers. David was rebuked when he counted his army. But I'm telling you today, if God comes, if his presence comes, if God be for me, well, who can be against me? Greater is he who is in me than he that's in the world. Are you getting this? So what does all that mean? I just want to share something with you. This just sort of left up in my my spirit, in the book of Acts. The book of Acts. I would say that the book of Acts would be a fairly reliable template on some things the early church did. I figure if that's how God started, he's going to eclipse that. Right? I've heard people say, well, we need to get back to the book of Acts. No, we don't. We need to go beyond the book of Acts. Somewhere in there, I suppose we will get up to the book of Acts. But then we have to press on to that which is greater. But in Acts chapter 7, verse 47, this was just an interesting thing in here that that I was reading. It says this. It says, Solomon, build him, meaning the Lord, a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. And then he goes on to declare... I believe it's out of the Psalms, about how heaven's his throne, the earth is his footstool. And so, and so it's reiterated in the book of Acts that, that we're, not talking about, we're not talking about a, a physical uh, cement or concrete foundation. We're not, we're not talking about physical uh, uh, building materials. So, so we understand we're talking about something spiritual. Solomon, it says, built a house. But God does not dwell in houses made with hands. So I have come to understand that to mean it wasn't the physical materials that drew the presence of the Lord. It was something else that drew him. It was something else that solicited his presence. Because God would come to a tabernacle in the wilderness, would he not? I mean, he came to just some bed sheets flying in the wind. He not only came to that, he came to Solomon's temple, an absolute An absolute opulent, incredible, I mean, expense beyond what we could even imagine. God came to that as well. So obviously, there's something more than just physical building materials. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but it just dawned on me as I was starting to scratch out some notes that in the early church, they met, the Bible tells us on several occasions definitively, it says that they met under Solomon's porch. Have you ever thought about that? You think they just landed there? Because that was, well, that's Solomon's porch. We'll just go meet over there. I think there was something important, something maybe even prophetic. There was something that, 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 that the Lord was trying to even at that moment, that early nascent moment, he was trying to kind of work it in them, in Solomon's porch. Some of the most notable miracles took place around Solomon's porch. In Acts 3.11, it's interesting. It says that once the lame man jumped up, and he began walking and praising God there at the temple gate. It says in Acts 3 verse 11, now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So there they are at Solomon's porch and these miracles are taking place. You see the same thing in Acts chapter 5 verse 12. It says through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were being done amongst the people. One of the signs and wonders were that Ananias and Sapphire had kicked over dead, you know, because they didn't handle their finance right. And it says that they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. In fact, it says in verse 13, the people esteemed them highly. God was increasing... The multitudes of both men and women, verse 14. In verse 15, it says, So they brought the sick out into the streets, laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them, and they would be healed. Is that not incredible? And there they are at Solomon's porch. There was something about the porch of Solomon. There was something about Solomon's temple. There was was just something in all of that that seemed to solicit God's presence in their midst. Now, I'm told that the temple had several aspects to its construction. But one of the things that I thought was notable, that whether we're talking about the tabernacle or whether we're talking about the temple, God seemed to use the number five in order to put together certain aspects of its construction. And whenever you see five in the Scripture, usually the number five, as I've come to understand it, has to deal with foundation. It has to deal with government. And so you'll find in both temple and tabernacle construction, you'll find five pillars and five curtain rods and five pieces of furniture, and five is the number of foundation. The church is built on five-fold ministry. I mean, we could go on and on talking about the number five. And I just started to dwell on it, and uh, I said to the Lord, Lord, help me understand then what it is you would have us to do under a new covenant. Help me to understand what it is we need to begin to do in order to make sure our foundations are good, in order that you might be drawn to it. And, and you know, surprise, five things I just want to share with you. That makes it the Lord, doesn't it? Five things. Hey, if you want to know what happened in Solomon's temple, you, I, I'm not going to read out of it. Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 5, you can begin to read some of what happened when they dedicated the temple of Solomon, but there are five things I just want to share with you that the latter house will be built on. Now, let me just say, I'm not just talking about church by way of organization and what we do together as a people, but you need to understand you're the temple of God, amen? Yeah, he lives, if you say you're a believer, he lives in you. And all the promises of God that he makes concerning the latter house are good for you too. I mean, God has something of incredible proportion and dimension. He has greatness that he really wants to unleash upon his people. Your tomorrow should be better than today. God wants to do all of these things, but you're going to have to be constructed as a ladder house. You can't be an old wineskin, nor can you be just a starbuck Christian. Who just simply gets what he wants when he wants it. And you just put it together however you see fit. God is not obligated to bless your agenda. God works according to pattern. And and we need to understand that. So God will do great things in your life individually. If I believe some of these things not only happen in individuals. But it happens in us as a church body as well. And so I'll just suggest them to you. Number one. Just as I've come to understand it. Five things the ladder house is built on. Number one singular focus singular focus there was only one thing that happened in the temple they didn't do a lot in the temple now i'm not saying there aren't ministries that cannot develop there aren't things that you can help people with don't misunderstand what i'm saying i'm not tossing stones anywhere i understand that the church is there in order to be an answer and solution in the earth so i will always have things that will help people and, and help them get their lives in order along the way. But we need to understand that if you want God to be solicited to a place, there was a singular focus in the temple, and that singular focus was this. We want God to come. That's the major thing. We want God to come. They offered sacrifices, and all that they did was for the purpose of worshiping God and, and soliciting his presence. Paul said even, he said, this one thing I do. He didn't say this, this, these 50 things I dabble in. This one thing I do, there was a singular focus on the worship of God. And and I think what that says to me is that there is a simplicity in this. This is not complex. You know, love is not a complex thing, really. When we get involved in it, it gets complex, doesn't it? I don't believe that love towards God really is a complex thing. I think there's a simplicity to it. It's really a pretty simple thing. God wants you to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what God wants. Jesus said that's number one. And then number two is this. You love your neighbor as yourself. He said the rest of it hangs on these two things. Singular focus. We tend to be overly complex even with our spirituality. We want the ten precepts to do this and the five things. And I'm sorry, I probably, I've probably been an aider in that in your life. Because I'll give you five to this and three to that and ten to this but you know what it's all about it's all about really singular focus simplicity and saying God we want you and if the glory comes on just one thing do you understand if, if all we did was one thing and the glory fell on just one thing that would be all you'd need because it wouldn't be the thing you see our problem is we think we need 50 things in order to meet need we don't need 50 things to meet need you need one thing that god's on and just because he's here everything else are you with me all right singular focus number two sacrificial living i started to think about solomon's temple you know the cost of the temple and the cost of the sacrifices if you'll read how many animals they killed that day on the dedication of the temple i mean it had to have been a bloody mess I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands of animals, not to mention the cost of building that opulent temple. I heard someone say, may have been me, that it was like $750 billion in today's currency. Can you imagine, can you imagine the sacrifice that was entered into for the worship of God? Sacrifice. Do you understand why in third world countries they see the presence of God do you understand why they see the presence of God in third world countries? It's because they sacrifice, and we don't. They walk miles, walk miles to get to church. We won't come to church if it's breezy and misty. Are you with me? We spend, they get there and, and they'll spend hours in service. I mean, they'll, I mean, you walk miles to service, you don't want 60 minutes you aren't looking for the express lane service. You walk hours to get there, you're going to spend some time there. But not us. Oh, no, 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 no. We want ours in just a set amount of time because we've got to get on with our busy life. And we wonder why God won't come to that. In fact, it's interesting that that when the temple restoration stopped, they, they began to restore there in Ezra's time. And if you'll leap over and read the rest of the story in the book of Haggai. It's interesting that Haggai sees that there was a moment they stopped the whole restoration process. And he begins to rebuke them. And as he rebukes them, he says to them, the prophet does, he says, y'all live in paneled houses, but look at the house of God. He said, and because of that, I know you're sowing. This is what the Lord says out of Haggai. He says, you sow much, but you reap little. Do you know why it is in America? We're, we're great givers. Don't misunderstand. I'm glad for it. But the reason it doesn't work like it does in other places is because there is no sacrifice to it. When God sees a sacrifice, He moves on that thing. He couldn't help but move when He saw all those animals and all the sacrifice. I mean, God, God, it says, who is a debtor to no man said, I'll come to that. I'll come to that. And that's why probably in the last days there will be missionaries that will come from third world nations to America to evangelize us. Because we don't get it. Number three. Five things the latter house is built on. Sincerity of heart. I mean, you do all those things. I mean, does that not just... Just demonstrate true passion, true confession, true repentance, true transparency, true intercession, genuine tears. I mean, they just kept it real. There was no phony baloney, no plastic smiles, no fake reports. God sees sincerity, and when he sees sincerity, he's drawn to that too. Sincerity and truth are two powerful, powerful things that God will dwell in, and he desires He can see the heart, he knows the heart, and and he sees the genuineness out of the heart. I know what we oftentimes say. Well, we'll have someone who'll be doing what they want to do, and they'll be in rebellion and disobedience, and they'll be stiff-necked to the Lord, and you'll try to just gently share with them about something, and they always say this, well, God knows my heart. Well, I know he knows your heart, and the rest of us do too, because you live it and you speak it, and we can all hear it and see it. So that doesn't cut the mustard. Your sincerity is not cutting the mustard because at this point you're sincerely wrong. You're genuinely off target. But you get sincerity and truth together, that's a powerful thing. And God's drawn to that. Number four, there was was a standard of holiness. A standard of holiness. I don't know if you've ever read, I I can't read them all to you in the book of Proverbs, uh, excuse me, book of Psalms 29. Psalms 29.2, I, I there, there are several of these passages that, that we could make mention of. I'll only make mention of two. Psalm 29, verse 2, it talks about worshiping the Lord. Give to the Lord, you mighty ones. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory, do His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. God loves uncommon people. So, uh, Psalm 96, verse 9. Psalm ninety six nine. It says, oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. I mean, we could go on and I could read on and on and on. But there's something about being uncommon. There's something about uncommon people and uncommon lives. And we're not talking about, I grew up in weird stuff. But I'm I'm talking about just wanting to live uprightly and integrally and righteously and uncommonly. I, I mean, God is drawn to that standard of holiness. And then finally, number five, there's the sounds of worship. The sounds of worship. God is drawn to a sound. When he hears a sound, he begins to move that direction. In fact, Jesus said in John 4 and 23, he said, he said the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such. You know what God's looking for? He's looking for those that will worship him in spirit and truth. It says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is drawn to true worshipers. I was visiting, this is a number of months ago, I was talking to my oldest son, Clay, and he had mentioned that uh, on Thursday night they have their uh, young adult meetings and uh, obviously he would be the worship leader for that. And he says there, are, there is on occasion, others from a, a rather notable church in the greater Atlanta area, the band members will slip in to his to his worship set there in uh, Gainesville. And, and they're fairly notable people. I mean, these band members are notable. They're at a notable church. And they'll slip into that Thursday night meeting. And despite the fact that most of their skills are probably better technically than Clay and the ones that are on his stage, they probably have a better understanding of theory and songwriting ability and all sorts of things that they have probably, probably are greater than what's going on there on the platform when he's leading worship but he says dad the reason they slip in is because they sense something there they don't sense where they're at there's something in the heart of man that wants and desires the presence of god you can experience a great performance you can experience wonderful things and let me say we ought to give god our best in fact if you come to leadership classes just wait till i crawl your case on excellence I mean, you don't give God just this cheesy thing. you got to give Him excellence. But I'm here to tell you, it's not excellence in and of itself. It's the heart that says, I'm giving Him everything i got. And there's something that God says, I can move in that. And when you, when you taste and see that the Lord is good, nothing else will ever satisfy you. I mean, you're, you're messed up for life when you taste and see. I believe we are called as a church to lay the foundation. I believe that. I believe one of our calls, I mean, is to lay a foundation for the latter house. And I'm just telling you, the Lord has already said, don't think it just gets slapped down in a heartbeat. You're going to have to dig through the murky, swampy, cruddy, alligator-filled, gnat-infested swamp to get that thing down there. This verse and I'm done. Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, verse 12. Listen to this. I believe this is the word of the Lord. This, this is as if I'm prophesying it to you. Isaiah 58:12. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. I believe that's the call of the Lord. I believe that's the heart of the Lord. The prophetic word said that there would be greater depth needed than has been there. And here's the good news. This is what I think. God wouldn't have given us that word if he didn't think we were up to the task. He wouldn't have spoken that just to tantalize us like a carrot goes before a horse. He thinks that we can do that if we're willing, if we're willing to dig to the depths he calls us to go. He wants to build his ladder house. Can I just share this with you? He will have. The issue isn't will God have it? He will have it. The question is will we be a part of it? And I'm just going to encourage you by saying this. I, I'm not accepting the counterfeit when I know there's a reality. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not swallowing the cotton candy. You know, I always call cotton candy like, eat, like eating sweet cobwebs. Have you ever put cotton candy? You could can have a big old thing of cotton candy like this. And then as soon as it's in your mouth, it's pew. It's gone. It's gone. But you put a big hunk of steak like that in your mouth. Why, why 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 embrace the fleeting when you can be a part of the enduring? The latter house. What about your life? Your life personally as well. Why 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 embrace things that just come and go? Why not why not Why not dig in, get solid, and give God a foundation that he can build something with? He wants to, he really does. And I believe he's doing it in this hour if we'll rise up and embrace it. Amen. Stand with me, will you please? I just want you all to agree with me in prayer right now. Just as we're standing, and I just want to beseech the Lord, and as you're standing there just just as it bears witness with your spirit, just agree with me. It says, if any two agree on earth as touching it in heaven, it shall be done. So I know if I can just get one or two of you to agree, we're on good ground. If I can get everyone to agree, we're unstoppable. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that first you would talk to us as individual believers and that, Lord, we would allow your Holy Spirit to begin to shine a light on the foundations of our life. Lord, I know I can say, at least personally, and I believe there are probably others here that could say it as well, Lord, doing church, doing church hasn't really cut it in a lot of ways. Doing church is good motive, it's well-intentioned, but Lord, doing church hasn't brought us out of our bondages. Doing church hasn't set us free from our challenges. Doing church, Lord, hasn't opened up the windows of heaven to sense your presence. Doing church hasn't transformed the areas that we've needed to be transformed. So Lord, there's got to be something besides doing church. So Lord, we open our lives up today as individuals and just saying, to you shine a light on the foundation is there any foundation or have we laid a foundation that's simply what we thought we needed what we thought was right what what we what we decided to do because it's just kind of what we do in america we've just been influenced by all sorts of people and factors lord forgive us forgive us would you renew our minds oh god renew our minds wash them clean and cause us lord by your presence and your revelation and then by lord instruction and and discipline and discipleship lord rewire us to think as you think and to see as you see and and to keep it all on the table the altar before you lord I pray for us as a people who you brought together to fellowship, to enjoy one another, to be encouraged by those of like faith. For all the reasons, Lord, we we come and say we're a part of legacy. Lord, we're grateful for those things. They're good intentioned and they're great motive. And Lord, I I I know you've worked in that in special ways, but Lord, now I pray, I want to use a specific moment before you, O God, and to simply say, Lord, help us build a foundation that you would be drawn to. Help us, Lord, lay that foundation. Lord, not with a yesterday spirit. Not as an old wineskin, but at the same time, not just somehow thinking like the Babylonians think, but Lord, as you reveal and unveil to us by Your Spirit. Help us to set a foundation that the glory can fall on. Help us set a foundation that the fire can fall and the Spirit can move and that, Lord, Your presence will come into and that, Lord, even if we only do one thing, it will be that one thing that You will be on and everything else finds its place. Lord, help us to trust You in that regard. Help us to be singular in our pursuit of you. Help us not to get sidetracked, but Lord, we want to be prepared to be the ladder house. The ladder house. Everyone say with me, say, I want to be a ladder house. I mean, don't you want to be a Christian that's up to date and fresh with a relevant word and a sense of God on your life. It's, they were, it's said of the disciples of old in Acts 4.13 that when they perceived, they perceived the ignorance. You've heard me say this before. When they, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unschooled, ordinary men, the word says, Acts 4.13, idiotes. They were idiots. But they took note of them, it says, that these men had been with Jesus. There was the Spirit of the Lord on them. There was something on them. Just ordinary people, but something was on them. That was the presence of God. They, became, they, be, they, they were becoming a ladder house. They were becoming the temple. Don't you want to be that? I, I do. I want, I want to be able to walk into a room and for people just to say there's something different. I can't explain it. That's the presence of God. The reason people think we're just like them is because they know presence. We need the presence of God, don't we? To be a ladder house. Some of you right now, in these last moments, I'm telling you right now what the Holy Spirit's going to do with you today. And through the upcoming probably weeks is he's going to take a sledgehammer and knock out the foundations you laid, your own purposes, your own agendas. You just sort of tack God onto what you were doing. And God's going to just destroy all of that. In fact, that's what he said to Jeremiah. He said, I'm going to destroy and pluck out in order that I can build and renew. Don't don't try to lay a foundation over a bad one. Just let him rip it out and put that new one in there. Rip it out. Rip it out, Lord. Come on, rip out. I've had to pray this, Lord. Rip out my old denominational tendencies. Rip them out. Rip out that old wineskin of a charismatic move, Lord. It was great in the 60s and 70s and even the 80s, but it was starting to wane, and then we just kind of rode that horse through the 90s. But Lord, rip it out. I don't want a yesterday happening. I want a today, God. Come on, let him rip some things out right now. Come on, it's okay if he does that. He's building something new. He said to Isaiah, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? Sure he is. This is what I want to do before we go. With every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm just going to pray quickly and then we're going to dismiss. But but if you're needing that, I just feel like there's some things right now people are working through. There's some things you know that the Lord's trying to dig out. And I want you to just say right now lord i'm not going to dodge it i'm going to come even to the place of prayer we call this the altars of the church sometimes i call it the well and i just want to give you some opportunity the cross will dig all that stuff out forgive it break it destroy it and begin to put freshness back in you you want to be you want to be a ladder house if god's digging around why don't you let him finish it up before you go this morning and just say yes lord do your work right now in me we've got several that have come you can come You can come. You won't be alone. Let him dig that stuff out before you go. Come on, dig that stuff out. It was good. You were well-intentioned. You weren't bad. It wasn't evil. Your motives were right. All your motives were good. But good intentions are not what operates the kingdom of God. Anyone else? You're just, he's just digging some things out of you. It's okay. This is, this is personal business. Hallelujah. If you're down front, I just want you to begin to say, just say, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, just start digging it out, right? Now, dig out those old foundations. Just pull out all that cemented in perspective and junk that still is in there. Just pull it out, Holy Spirit. Come on, pull it out. Pull it out. Hallelujah. Hallelujah pull it out, pull it out, let it go, let him do something new. You're going to be new, new, fresh. And then as he's pulling that out, then be sure you say, Lord, fill up now, fill up this area, begin to lay the foundations that I need. Lay them in me, I pray in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Congregation, congregation. Did I get one or two to agree with me when I was praying there? Did did I get a few? All right. I believe God's going to do some great things. The glory of the latter house. The glory of the latter house will be greater than the former. Do you understand? God's going to do something greater than the great awakening. God's going to do something greater than the revivals of the holiness movement. God's going to do something greater than Azusa Street. God's going to do something greater than the day of Pentecost. Do you understand that? He always eclipses himself. You may have a testimony of some time in the past where God did something great in your life and you know it was the Lord. And probably to this day you said, I can't imagine God doing any more than that. I'm telling you, God will do more.